2: It's been a century and a half since Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species, a bestseller that's still getting reviewed and reviled today. But a lot has changed since then. We now know just how richly weird and diverse the results of evolution can be. Coming up, tusk to tusk, horn to horn, the arms race between animals, why the human evolutionary tree has been replaced by a bush and New York Times columnist Carl Zimmer on the number of species of bacteria that live in his belly button. Don't wince. You have them, too. And so did Charles Darwin, although he didn't know it. It's Big Picture Science.
1: By now, it's a familiar story. The variety of plants and animals we see today are all the result of descent through modification. In other words, offspring are slightly different from their parents, and competition selects out those individuals best suited for whatever environment they're in. In a phrase, survival of
0: the fittest. I got my graph paper, my two textbooks on droplet formation, and I have the Vander Waals force down pat. I'm sure to get into the advanced fluid mechanics class. But do you have the computational software to calculate Reynolds' numbers for non-linear flow? (coughs) Bosons defeated once again.
2: And a lot has changed since Darwin first started using the term survival of the fittest. For one, it's part of our lexicon and it's applied to all kinds of competitions, not just those involving mutating biology. Today, 150 years after Darwin traipsed around the Galapagos, we understand that the diversity of animal and plant species is vastly greater than he'd imagined and that we'd imagined, and that the process of evolution explains a stunning array of biological phenomena. In short, Charles Darwin didn't realize the full power of his theory— I'm Seth Shostak.
1: I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists investigate the nature origin and prevalence of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology, from where they've been to where they're headed, and what's more big picture than the evolution of life. Sure, it's survival of the fittest, but with so many species competing, we present Surfeit of the Vitalist.
2: Charles Darwin famously observed that the beaks of finches in the Galapagos Islands varied depending on environmental circumstances. Each was a differently adapted tool for the bird. Now that kind of observation motivated his now well-known theory. Darwin would be delighted by the vast array of animal adaptations that have been studied since. And one kind of tool that a great number have developed is weaponry. Nowhere is the combative nature of evolution more obvious than in the armament that's carried around by many species of animals.
1: For them, being fittest means having the longest tusks, the sharpest teeth, or maybe just some good camouflage. Biologist Doug Emlin has been fascinated by this military gear since he was a child. Now a professor at the University of Montana, he gives a disarming description of nature's weaponry in his new book, Animal Weapons, and provides some insights into the human arms race as well.
2: Doug, you have some company there. Uh, it's a rhino, but not a, not a rhino, really. It's a rhinoceros beetle. Uh, does it have a
3: weapon? And if so, what kind? It does. I have a rhinoceros beetle crawling across my hand right now. And uh, it's a species called the Japanese rhinoceros beetle or the giant Asian rhinoceros beetle. And it's called giant because not compared to an actual rhino, but compared to any other insect you're used to thinking about. They're big. He's probably an inch and a half to two inches long. And then on the top of his head, he has a pretty spectacular horn.
2: Well, when so, you say spectacular, how big is spectacular?
3: Well, you've got to think relative to the beetle, but it's almost as long as the rest of his body. And it's a pitchfork shape, so it's a triangular shaft that projects forward from his head for almost an inch. And then it splits into two branches, and then each of those branches splits again so that the result is a four-tined structure, not unlike a pitchfork.
2: Does it use that to attack prey? What does it
3: use it for? It is analogous in every respect to the antlers that we would see in caribou, or elk, or deer, or the tusks and elephants. It's a structure that the males carry, not the females, and they use them in battles with rival males over access to females.
2: It's not going to attack you. You're not a potential competitor.
3: No, nope. he's chewing on my finger, but mostly because he thinks it's an apple. He's definitely not going to attack me with this. And it's not something that they use to protect themselves from predators. These are weapons that males use in vicious or vigorous battles with rival males over access to females.
2: Well, since we're talking in this show about biological evolution, that kind of weaponry is understandable, right? Because it facilitates the one thing in life that is most important to these critters, and that is reproduction.
3: Absolutely. So we're dealing with a species here that, like many other animal species, has intense competition among the males. And this results in general because females in many animals invest quite a bit more in reproduction than the males do. And because females are committed to reproduction for longer than the males in these animals, there's a lot of males floating around there sort of able and willing to mate and not very many females. And so the result can be intense competition among the males over access to a very limiting number of reproductive females.
2: Okay, so good for them. Their genes get into the next generation. But, you know, uh, I would think that having a big horn is good, but having a bigger horn would be better. Why is it that these beetles don't have horns that are, you know, three times as long as they are? It sounded to me like they'd win all the women.
3: (laughs) Well, it's a tricky question with two sides to it. On the one hand, these horns are pretty spectacular. They're among the largest weapons that we see in any animal. So they are quite big. But you can turn around and ask, why aren't they even bigger? And in, in many of the animals with these extreme weapons... What you find is that as they get really big, they also get really, really expensive. And they get so expensive that for many of these animals, only a very small percentage of the males can actually produce the biggest of the weapons. So if you were to go out and measure, say, 100 of these animals and look at their body size and look at their weapon size, you'd only find a very small fraction that actually have really monstrous weapons. The rest of the males in these populations have medium-sized or even tiny little weapons. They're just not able to do it.
2: And when you say expensive,
3: I mean, they're not ordering these online. Expensive means in terms of the food required to grow these things? Expensive can mean a lot of things depending on the animal. So if we're talking about beetles with horns, one of the prices a male pays is that as they allocate resources to the growth of the weapon, they end up having to shunt those resources away from other things. And so there are are dung beetle species where the males with the biggest horns also have tiny testes or smaller genitalia or smaller wings or eyes. And depending on your perspective, that can be a pretty hefty price to pay for fighting ability. But then there are other species, as with many of the the deer or the, the moose and the elk, where the males pay just as an exorbitant a price, but it's a different kind of price. In that case, it's minerals like phosphorus and calcium that they have to allocate to the growth of the bone, and they can't get very much of that from their food. And so for some of these guys, for the biggest males, they have to shunt the minerals out of their own skeleton, leach them from their existing bones to to siphon them off and put them in the weapons and that's a pretty hefty price to pay too.
2: well, you talk about arms races amongst animals, and it, it just sounds to me like now that these arms races where you know the horns keep getting longer and longer because if it's longer, you get you know more progeny and so forth and so on, but that probably provokes a reaction on the other side, right, whether it's a predator-prey relationship or just competition amongst the males. Tell me about an arms race.
3: Well, so an arms race is a special dynamic that happens. If you look across animals, almost everything has a weapon of one kind or another. So dogs have claws or teeth, I mean, almost any species you pick has weapons. But those aren't weapons that we think of as, as having been caught up in an arms race. It's only a fairly small number of species where the weapons get really, really big. And those are, of course, the ones that I'm the most fascinated by and the ones I spend most of my time trying to study. But something's happening that's special in those species that we think sparks an arms race. And what that means is, if you think of males battling or combating each other in different habitats, there's lots of places where having a big weapon isn't really going to help you very much. If you picture a whole bunch of beetles on the surface of the ground, as we see with lots of the ball-rolling dung beetle species, they'll pile on top of each other and push and shove, and three or four or five males may attack a male all at the same time, having a really big weapon doesn't help because speed or agility matter more than sort of bulk or strength. And a lot of times if you don't have a place to anchor yourself or push from, then there's really no payoff to a big weapon. But in animals that fight in restricted places or fight in circumstances where they really lock up against each other face to face and one-on-one where they can push and pry those kinds of fights, are ones where the bigger male, the stronger male, or the male with the bigger weapons tends to be the winner. And it's in that kind of a situation that you can start to get one of these arms races because bigger is always better. And it's not like any absolute size is best. It's not the beetle with a one and a half inch long horns that necessarily wins. It's the beetle that has horns that are bigger than everybody else's horns. And that's a moving playing field. So as the weapons get bigger through time, the standard against which a male has to compete also gets bigger.
2: Okay, but that can't go on forever. I mean, what happens? Well, why no, does the why, why does the arms race end? I mean, did they did they have treaty conferences?
3: What happens? <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned treaty conferences because how arms races end was a big sort of open question. As a biologist, we knew that they do end. If you look across a group of ungulates or across a group of beetles and you reconstruct their past and you, and you look at how the species have diversified through time and you, and you look at what the weapons have done through time, through sort of a, a period of evolutionary past, you see in all of these lineages that there are lots of instances where animals lost their weapons. You would reconstruct an ancestor that had really big weapons and then all of a sudden those weapons are gone. So we know that arms races do end. But we have very little to go by in terms of figuring out how or why they end because we almost never get to catch that process in the wild. But one of the fun things that came out of researching this book was a chance to look at the military literature and to start looking at the behavior, if you will, of arms races in our own military past. And that's a different situation. We have very good recorded histories of the trajectories of evolution of weapons technologies. And we know a lot about what brings an arms race to its end in our own arms races. And the fun was taking that logic and turning around and looking back at animals and starting to sort of bring the insights from military technologies back to animal behavior to see if we could help understand these questions of how these races end. The take-home lesson, I think, is that arms races end for one of two reasons. One of the reasons is that they just, as these weapons get big, they get increasingly expensive, and you reach a point where the process of escalation stalls. It doesn't mean it's not good to have really big weapons, but it's not better to continue to have even bigger weapons. The costs have become so high that they essentially balance out the benefits and you you reach a stalemate. The other thing that I think can end an arms race is a change in the circumstances. Something about the nature of the battle or the fights that we're talking about, where suddenly having a really big weapon switches, sometimes rather ab- abruptly, from being a benefit to being a huge, literally, liability. And the things that can pull that about are invasion of cheaters. So in animals, we find sneaky beetles or coursing male bighorn sheep that go running into a harem when males are distracted in battle and try to sneak matings with the females. Any of these populations have males that break the rules. They're not able to pay the price. They can't produce the really big weapons. They've got no options other than to break the rules and switch to plan B. And cheaters end up sort of eroding the payoffs, the benefits to a male of having these weapons. And in the case of human weapons, cheaters can be new technologies that fundamentally changed the nature of battle so that something that previously had been exceptional suddenly becomes a liability.
2: It makes me think of the Soviet Union and, uh, if you will, guerrilla armies.
3: Absolutely. And I talk about that in the book quite a bit. I think that it's not an accident that we, the current state with the largest conventional forces, face a string of rivals that all cheat. They all use guerrilla tactics, asymmetric warfare tactics. Those are the only options on the table for them. But it makes perfect sense when you consider that in the context of of these alternate sneaky tactics. It's exactly what we see in animals.
2: What are some of the most spectacular weapons uh, wielded by the creatures you've studied, Doug?
3: There are some beetles, I have to say, and I'm partial to beetles, because some of the rhinoceros beetles have weapons that just blow my mind. They're so big. But to get beyond the beetles, just to show you how diverse these things are, the fiddler crab is actually the animal that holds the trophy for the biggest weapon relative to their body size. So there are fiddler crabs out there where in the largest individual males, the claw weighs as much as the whole rest of a male's body. That means they're literally carrying their entire body weight around in a weapon. And that's the champion. But in terms of animals that might be more familiar to people, the fallow deer and the caribou are the deer species that hold the records, if you will, for the largest weapons relative to their body size. And the antlers on a caribou are magnificent to look at. Huge, bony protrusions with beautiful branching structures that come off and they arch backwards over a male almost the full length of the male's body.
2: What about camouflage? I mean, you know, a lot of critters are camouflage.
3: Cuttlefish seem to be particularly good at that. Is that really a weapon or is that, you know, I don't know, something else? So we're getting into semantics there and that's a tough one, whether they count as weapons or not. I included them in the book because I thought it was a really good entry-level trait to get people thinking about where variation in the expression of the trait would affect the performance or survival of animals. So I would argue that camouflage is in a gray zone of whether we would consider it to be a weapon or not, but it's certainly a characteristic that can drastically influence whether or not an animal survives or not. And if they're able to effectively hide from predators, then there's a tremendous sort of fitness or, or performance advantage associated with that. And I think any military forces would agree with that one in an instant, that camouflage might not be the biggest weapon they're carrying out into battle, but it's almost just as important
2: we we're talking a lot here about you know evolutionary pressures energy expenditures being a cost for having a bigger horn or something like that uh, for a huge tusk to evolve but if you do that if you build something that allows you to compete with males that might take away from your ability to simply being attractive to the opposite sex I'm, thinking here in terms of a peacock. A, a peacock can either build blue feathers that will attract the peahens or maybe a horn, but it doesn't seem to have chosen to do both. Well, What's so the... there are
3: fiddler crabs. I already mentioned them as the champions with the biggest weapons, but those big weapons are beautiful. A lot of the fiddler crabs have bright color patterns on the weapons. And as far as we can tell from the people that are studying these things, the males will wave these things up and down and up and down, and and they are actual weapons proper that they use in battles with rival males. But it's the females that are paying attention to these waving displays and to the really bright colors on the weapons. So there's a great example where it works as an actual legitimate weapon and also like a peacock's train as a display.
2: Well, finally, Doug, are Homo sapiens the only species that has created weapons that have the potential to destroy the creator?
3: (laughs) Yes. That's not where I thought you were going to go with that one. We are not the only species that has manufactured weapons. For example, chimps will pick up a rock and use them in fights with other chimps. But um, yes, I would have to say that we are the only species that has come up with a weapons technology that has the capacity to kill on that type of a scale. And that was probably the most sobering lesson for me was realizing that all these beautiful parallels between arms races and our own history and arms races and animals come to a sort of a screeching halt when you start to factor in things like weapons of mass destruction. Because you can watch crabs battling it out on a beach and big crabs might be beating little crabs and medium crabs are fighting over in another part of the beach and tiny crabs are fighting it out on another part of the beach. But it doesn't really matter to all the other crabs who wins in any particular conflict. We're talking about weapons where If any of the crabs use them, big or small, anybody uses these things at any time, the consequences are catastrophic for everybody. And I don't think there is an animal parallel for that one. It's a a pretty scary reality.
2: Douglas Emlin, thank you so very much for talking with us today.
3: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Douglas Emlin is a biologist at the University of Montana and the author of Animal Weapons, the Evolution of Battle.
2: Well, so Darwinian evolution, survival of the fittest, doesn't mean you're the fittest. It doesn't necessarily mean that you work out every afternoon to be fit. It could be that, you know, you have something else. You're one of the cheaters, for example. They could be the fittest.
1: (laughs) Well, I hate to think that what you learn from Emlyn is that it pays to cheat.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Well, well, no. But, you know, it explains perhaps why any society, you know, there are always 1% or 2% of them that are not following the rules. Because from a Darwinian point of view— that might have survival value. Okay, we've been talking about animals, but what about the evolution of the human animal? What about us? It's always about us. We often think of humans as being the apogee of evolution, the brainiest and the best. Well, we'll leave it for you to decide whether those descriptions are accurate.
1: But wherever you think we are on the scales of achievement, getting there wasn't a straight evolutionary path. Turns out there have been many species of hominid, We now know that several walked the planet at the same time, but only one eventually became modern humans. That's science coming up.
2: That's a lot of hominids, and that's why this is a surfeit of the vitalist on Big Picture Science.
0: With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
2: In his famous book, On the Origin of Species, Charles Darwin chose not to write much about the evolution of man. Instead, he cautiously noted that light will be thrown on the origin of man and his history.
1: It's a great cliffhanger that is now, 150 years later, being illuminated, but only just...
2: Although some of us may feel we already know the story, we have this image of human evolution just as it's emblazoned on many a t-shirt. Knuckle-dragging chimp becomes upright hunched chimp, becomes slightly stooped hominid, becomes upright modern man. Then modern man hunched again, this time over a computer, at least in some versions. The point is, except for the part of us curled over our electronic devices, because after all that's accurate, scientists now say it didn't happen that way. But could a million t-shirts be wrong?
1: It's been a surprise to paleoanthropologists to discover just what a messy business the evolution of humans has been.
2: George Washington University paleoanthropologist Bernard Wood points out that it's not a straight ladder.
1: Things are more complicated than we thought. Dr. Wood spends his time digging into our evolutionary past literally in the ancient dirt of Africa in search of our distant ancestors. He hopes to identify our evolutionary cousins and perhaps better understand why Homo sapiens emerged as the fittest in this competition to be the brainiest beings on the planet.
2: Bernard, when you're in the field doing field work and you come across some ancient human bones or teeth or something, how can you tell from a fragment what hominid species that is? I mean, suppose you find a jawbone or something. How, how can you identify that?
4: You do what you would do if you were in a supermarket and you were looking to see whether you like this particular piece of fruit or another piece of fruit. You pick it up and you turn it over and you look at its characteristics and you go through your the Rolodex cards in your memory and you say, have I seen this before? Sometimes if it's a very small fragment, the first thing you have to do is to work out where it comes from. So you can imagine, you know, you're in a a motor accident and there are all these pieces of cars all over the road the first thing the investigators do is to try and work out whether it's a bit of the fender from the front or the bit of the trunk lid or whatever. So that's the first thing you do. Where does it come from in the body? In other words,
2: you don't have a, a I don't know, a notebook with pictures of various kinds of jaw bones. I mean, you've done this so often, you can recognize them simply by looking at them.
4: Yeah, it's in my head. And
2: it's usually, uh, of course, bones and teeth. I, when younger, was always amazed that these people were always studying the teeth. But I suppose that's one of the things that's
4: still left. Uh, Yeah, you know, the teeth are the hardest thing in your body. And when all else has disappeared and animals have trampled and broken the bones into fragments that are so small, you can't really tell they belong to us and not a carnivore, the teeth will survive all that. They don't always survive all that, but they more often than other parts of the body survive that process. So if you want to recognize, you know, a make of car, if you're sensible, you'll go to the dashboard or you'll go to the radiator grill. If you're a paleontologist, you go to the teeth. The goal
2: of your research is to try and, you know, understand the hominid family tree. In other words, it's, it's kind of a super genealogy project. In a in a way, you want to find out all the species that are related to us or that have led to us. Now, very naively, and again, this was the the picture I had as a kid that there was kind of a series of species that led to us. I mean, you know, if you go back one, you get to the Neanderthals, and if you go back two, you get to Homo erectus, and if you go back three, you get to Australopithecus. That there was just this long line of
4: ancestors going back to some ape somewhere. But it's not that way, right? Yeah. The only course I ever took on human evolution, it was like that. Now it's a lot more complicated, and basically the only relatives that you need are your direct ancestors. So I must have had a father, he must have had a father, his father must have had a father and a mother also. So the idea we had in those days, which is in the 60s, was that the only thing that was in the fossil record was either the descendant of an earlier species or the ancestor of a later one. Now we know that we have the equivalent of my uncles and cousins, in other words, they're my relatives, but they're not my ancestors and not my direct descendants. And what I'm interested in is trying to work out Which of the taxa are the equivalent of my parents and grandparents, and which of the taxa are the equivalent of my uncles and great-uncles? Maybe you could give me an
2: example of some of our cousins. I, I think the Neanderthals were not direct ancestors of us,
4: as I once thought, right? That's true. It's not a part of the fossil record that I'm an expert on, but it's pretty clear to me that Neanderthals lived at the same time as members of our own species, and so it's really difficult to see Neanderthals as our ancestors. Likewise, I talked about a creature which was called Paranthropus boisei. Now, it's called Paranthropus because it's beside man. That's what it was called, and that was very prescient because it's almost certain that Paranthropus boisei was not our ancestor, but it lived alongside creatures that were more likely to be our ancestors a couple of million years ago. And and wasn't there
2: also a species that lived on this island in the Pacific that may have been a cousin, as it were?
4: There was a creature which is called Homo floresiensis, which lived on an island called Flores, and we think it's probably younger than 100,000 years, and this was a creature that was living at the same time as modern human-like creatures were living in Africa, and modern human-like creatures were living in the Near East, and yet it was more primitive. And so it's a real challenge to work out what was going on. The most likely explanation for Homo floresiensis is, is that it's probably a dwarfed version of one of our ancestors or close relatives.
2: So these other species, I mean, uh, obviously these were all, if you will, descendants from some relative. If you went far enough back,
4: we all had uh, the same common ancestor as it's called, right? The evidence is from the molecules and also from the anatomy is that we shared a common ancestor with the chimpanzees and the bonobos probably around 6 million years ago. And my job is to try and work out what happened between that hypothetical common ancestor and modern humans. Now, you and I rehearsed the fact that in the past we thought that that wasn't a problem, it was just a question of knowing where you were in the time and you could predict which would be the taxon you would expect to find in the fossil record. Now we know it's not a ladder, it's a bush, and we need to work out which of the branches of the bush actually get to the surface, because the surface is now and the surface is you and I, but there are many branches in that bush. My job is to work out which of those branches are the ones that lead to modern humans, and which actually lead nowhere. Well, they don't actually lead nowhere. If you take Paranthropus boisei, it existed for a million years, which is a pretty long time to exist as a species. So by anybody's count, it was successful. The fact that it went extinct may not have been its fault. It was just the wrong creature in the wrong place. We need to work out how to identify the direct ancestors as opposed to the close relatives. And that's a problem that keeps me awake at night. Well, but you say, you know, they went extinct, but maybe that's not their
2: fault. Well, eventually went extinct in the sense that they're not walking the streets today. But, you know, I'm sure this is a very self-centered notion. Uh, but, you know, when I think of the Neanderthals, And the Neanderthals didn't leave a lot of literature. They had a few tools, but they never built turret lathes or rockets or anything like that. And so we figure, well, you know, they just weren't brainy enough. I mean, is is that what it is? Were they just out-competed or was there something else, some other evolutionary pressure that made us the winners and And they, in some sense, the losers.
4: If I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't be talking to you on the radio. I'd be driving around in a very big car. (laughs) Um, My sense is that if you went back in time, although our direct ancestors were probably making slightly different things than the Neanderthals, the reality is that on average, the brains of the Neanderthals were larger than the brains of our ancestors living at the same time. So it's probably nothing to do with braininess as in terms of how large a brain you have. It may have been something to do with the details of the brains. In other words, were our ancestors better at looking around and making an assessment of where the resources were? Did they have a social system that gave them just a small advantage? What you have to realize is that the difference between Neanderthals making radio programs and homo sapiens making radio programs may have been tiny, tiny advantages. You know, we're not looking for huge differences. We're just looking for very marginal differences.
2: Okay, well, but you know, I have to say that that leads me to to wonder. uh, You know, this is evolution, this is the way it works, and sometimes you win and and sometimes that win isn't an an overwhelming win. Just a small, small little difference will mean you're, you're still here and that guy's gone. Uh, But it does sound like, since, you know, it wasn't one line that leads from us back to forest apes, that there were many experiments in evolution in our part of the evolutionary tree, lots of twigs that had creatures that were kind of human-like. So does that tell us anything about the likelihood of an intelligent species arising elsewhere? I mean, should we expect intelligence to be a common evolutionary development on other
4: worlds where you have a lot of life? I don't think there is any reason to assume that we are unique. I have no evidence that there are other planets where there is intelligent life, but I also have no reason to say that such things couldn't exist. And although it's highly, highly unlikely that exactly the same creatures as us would have evolved, it's not impossible that a creature that had some of our attributes might have evolved on one of those planets. Well, finally, Bernard, this may sound a bit, I don't know, crass or something, but
2: why do we care about those evolutionary branches that didn't become us? I mean, these species clearly didn't have what it took to become a modern human. Uh, It might have been a small
4: difference, but they didn't have it. So why are we interested? Because these creatures offer us a mirror to look at ourselves, because they were living at the same time as our ancestors they were dealing with roughly the same habitats as our ancestors. And by understanding them, we understand the context of our own evolution. And I'm rather perverse, you know, I mean, most people are interested in our direct ancestors. I really like the odd things that clearly didn't evolve into us. That means that I'm not competing with hundreds of other scientists who were trying to find the origin of this and the origin of that. I'm happy, interested in these creatures that lasted a million years, and I'd like to put flesh and bones on them, and I would really like to have a time machine to take me back to Africa a couple of million years ago and to see what Paranthropus boisei looked like, what it was doing, how many of them were there, what sort of groups they were living in. You know, that's really cool. And I like these creatures who didn't make it. Bernard Wood, thank you so very much for talking with us today. Thank you very much for having me, and I much appreciated and enjoyed the conversation.
1: Bernard Wood is a paleoanthropologist at George Washington University.
2: Well, there may be many more species of hominid than we realized, more than Charles Darwin realized. But I'll tell you that the number of microbes outnumber and sometimes outwit us all.
1: New York Times columnist Carl Zimmer with stories of counting belly button bacteria and which evolutionary concepts he finds the trickiest to explain to the public. Next.
2: Sure, it's survival of the fittest, but it's also a surfeit of the vitalist from Big Picture Science.
5: Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: It all makes logical sense within the framework of Charles Darwin's theory— the arms race of beetles, the adaptability of other hominids competing to still be around. It's all about survival.
1: But there are some things about evolution that the English naturalist didn't foresee and which he would find truly amazing. For example, Homo sapiens is not just one species, but a composite organism with bacteria and viruses on us, and even in us, and they have their own evolutionary agendas.
2: Also, Charles Darwin didn't know about genetics, although Gregor Mendel was a contemporary and had begun his famous experiments with pea plants just a couple of years before the publication of On the Origin of Species. Mendel's experiments, of course, established the principles of inheritance. The discovery of DNA would come much later than that, and the decoding of the human genome didn't happen until the 21st century. So while Charles Darwin and his contemporary Alfred Russell Wallace introduced us to the concept of evolution...
5: Well, in some ways, we're only really just starting to understand evolution right now.
1: For one, because the price of sequencing a genome has come way down. So now we have the genetic codes of many animals besides us. For example, the chimpanzee, the bonobo, the lion, the cow, the rat, the platypus, and many viruses and bacteria.
5: My name is Carl Zimmer, uh, and I'm a columnist for The New York Times. And so actually scientists can look at all these genomes and find the individual mutations that are sort of the engine of evolution, and you can start to really get down to evolution in this incredibly fine detail and actually answer some long-standing questions about how evolution really works.
2: If there's a new development in evolutionary biology that Carl Zimmer hasn't written about, we can't imagine what it is.
5: One thing that we can start to appreciate is just how much diversity evolution is generated, and I don't think we really appreciated that before. Um, One of the big revelations is that the genetic diversity of microbes far, far outweighs the genetic diversity of animals and plants and the life we're familiar with. So if you wanted to count up like the the species on Earth, they'd be mostly bacteria, viruses, things like that. And and we didn't really appreciate that before because before, you know, bacteria were just, you know, spots on a dish. Now we can actually read their genomes and we can see, you know, like a species like E. coli, for example. It's not not really a species. It's many, many, many species that are all uh, evolving in different directions. And, you know, another amazing thing is that Not only do they pass down their genes to their offspring, but then they trade genes between each other and between species. And so the tree of life is starting to look like uh, the web of life.
1: Well, one of the things that's striking on this idea of diversity about your writing are the numbers that are involved. So you write about a mammal fossil that is 227 million years old or the hundreds and thousands of different species of beetles. So how do you or how do we get our heads around, our minds around the deep time and just the vast numbers involved when we talk about evolution?
5: It's, it's really hard to kind of get a feel for that. I don't think our brains are really set up very well for that. So sometimes it helps to sort of think in terms of metaphor to deal with big numbers. And you know, biology is all about big numbers. There's no question about it. You know, you can think about, you know, the human genome as, you know, a book because it's made up of units that are kind of like letters, except it wouldn't be just a book. It would be like a shelf after shelf after shelf of giant encyclopedia-sized volumes. You, you can think about viruses. It turns out there are a lot of viruses on Earth, and, and scientists have estimated that's 10 to the 31st power viruses. So that's like a, a one with 31 zeros after it. And you know, how do you even deal with a number like that? One virologist, in a review, decided that the best way to think about that was to say, okay, let's take say you took a virus and then stuck another virus on top of it and then another one on top of that, and you basically built a tower of viruses. So when you ran out of viruses, how high would the tower be? And it turns out that it would go about uh, 200,000 light years. So you'd leave this galaxy and you'd go past 60 other galaxies. I hope that helps.
1: (laughs) It's interesting, though, that you used a metaphor that draws on astronomy and cosmology to talk about biology, because astronomers and cosmologists are in the same boat. Mm -hmm. They're trying to explain to the public deep time and these vast numbers. On the subject of uh, viruses, as you said, we've been impressed by the number of them and the fact that they not only outnumber us, they may outwit us as well. And what have we learned recently about just how how clever their evolutionary adaptation is. Could you give a specific example? Uh,
5: there are all sorts of really uh, amazing things that these viruses do. I, I have actually been writing recently about uh, noroviruses. And these are the viruses that are notorious for you know, making people like, violently ill. They're the viruses that shut down cruises because everybody gets it, and they're all just plagued with diarrhea and throwing up for a couple of days. It's awful, um, but the biology is amazing. So, you know, one of the things that they do, for example, scientists have just discovered, is that they they get into the gut and they basically grab onto one of the harmless species of bacteria that live in our gut, and then they somehow get that bacteria to ferry them into the lining of our intestines, and there they can invade uh, immune cells there. So they actually go after the very cells that are supposed to be annihilating them, and they infect these immune cells inside our gut. And, you know, it's just, it's an amazing uh, bit of biology. And that's just one example of many, many, many ways that viruses manipulate their hosts. And what's really stunning about it is that they're doing all this with, you know, 10, 15 genes. They're incredibly simple and incredibly sophisticated.
1: This also illuminates our relationship with the, the microscopic world because we have viruses and bacteria that are parasites and could kill us and then we have the same that we couldn't live without. And so as humans, humans are very focused on their own evolution and maybe not so much Maybe we don't appreciate so much our relationship to the other creatures that have evolved with us. In other words, we're learning that we're not solo travelers.
5: Right. We haven't been solo travelers for many, many hundreds of millions of years, really billions of years, because you know each of our cells contains uh, mitochondria, which are these tiny organs that basically generate our energy for us. And those started out as bacteria that invaded our single-celled protozoan ancestors. And then when we became animals, we became great places for bacteria to hang out and live in. And then, and then we evolved the gut. And now all of a sudden here was this cylinder that food was being pumped into and you know, bacteria couldn't ask for anything better. So, so we've had these microbiomes with us for a long, long time and we have all been co-evolving together. And that this is actually important now because uh, you know, we use antibiotics a lot which are incredibly important for saving many lives. But in the process, we are also disrupting that ecosystem. And you know, our bodies really are not adapted to dealing with that kind of you know, drastic disruption. So maybe allergies, maybe asthma, maybe even some cases of diabetes or obesity. This is the fallout of a lot of antibiotics use because we depend on our microbiome for so much.
1: So when you see people, when you meet a new person, are you able to see the person, or do you just see this whole collection of bacteria and viruses as someone who's been writing extensively about them?
5: I I guess I still kind of, you know, focus on the person. But, yeah, if I think about it, you know, I mean, certainly you, you can't, you know, ignore the trillions of viruses and bacteria that they're carrying with them. People do seem to be freaked out about the microbiome. And it's interesting. I did a piece once about participating in a study where a scientist wanted to do a survey of the bacteria living in people's belly buttons. So all that involved was just taking a Q-tip and just rubbing around on your belly button and handing it over to him in a vial, and he would look for all the bacteria. So in my case, I wrote about him finding 58 species of bacteria in my belly button. And I found this very interesting, and some of them were most closely related to species that had only been found at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. It was fascinating to me. A lot of people reacted like, oh my gosh, you're disgusting, you must not bathe, or something like that. And and I kept having to say again and again, first of all, that's actually kind of an average number. There are lots of people who have over 100 species in their belly button. Second of all, if you got your test back and you showed up with zero species of bacteria, you should be really worried because you're probably going to get a serious infection. You know, Our microbiome is like a, a shield to keep disease-causing bacteria from really making our lives terrible.
1: Now, my co-host Seth Shostak has a complaint about evolution, and he would like me to share it with you. He thinks it's supremely inefficient. He said it's bottom-up manufacturing, we're adding on parts, we're refining, we're building slowly over time, and it's supposed to be fine-tuning along the way, and yet here we are left walking on two legs, and by the end of the day, we have backaches. So in other words, if the human body were manufactured, we'd probably take it back and ask for our money back. So is evolution really the best way to build things?
5: evolution is just how nature works and yeah we we have to just take it we don't really have a choice in the matter and one of the things that's important to understand with evolution is not just all those amazing adaptations that allow us to to live in the world but also the maladaptations the backaches and all the other problems we have to deal with
1: so seth needs to make peace with evolution
5: Unless he wants to go move to another universe where everything biological has been you know, designed from scratch, that's fine. I would point out, though, that um, you know, evolution may have its drawbacks, but it's been working for a long, long, long time, and so it's, it's actually solved a lot of problems uh, at the same time and in a way that's pretty robust. A human who would try to design a system might not be able to sort of think in advance about all the problems that needed to be solved, especially for a life form that is facing all sorts of challenges in the environment and also needs its genes to be doing a lot of different things at once. So, you know, you can take your pick. You can just, you know, go to Microsoft and trust them that they'll be able to make a a working human, or you can rely on, you know, four billion years of evolution that has actually, like, hit all those dead ends already and dealt with it unconsciously to produce us.
1: Sounds like you might know something about what Microsoft has gotten into on the side. Okay. You also write about the human brain and the mind that it gives rise to. And does a human mind fit easily into the story of evolution or does it seem to be some kind of a special case? I mean, it seems so different from everything else that we've come up with.
5: you know, the human mind is, is definitely unique. On the other hand, you know, the, the mind of a Portuguese man-o-war is unique too. I mean, it, we need to sort of not get too obsessed over our own uniqueness. Every species has interesting adaptations that are a product of its own niche. And we happen to be this primate that has occupied a particular what's called a cognitive niche in other words we we took a pretty impressive primate brain and through a particular fluke of you know living in particular environment we started to specialize in a kind of a social intelligence which then took off and made it possible for us to to use this kind of open-ended thinking to use language for example in an infinite combination of ways to generate ideas that hadn't been thought of before Um, So, you know, the human mind is an amazing thing and an incredibly powerful thing, sometimes a very dangerous thing, but it's not like it sort of stands separate from evolution.
1: You've dedicated yourself, among other things, to translating evolutionary science to the public. And I'm wondering if um, you found that there's one idea that's particularly difficult to get across and that it's hard to get non-scientists to take to heart.
5: Well, I think that the objection that a lot of people have to evolution when they first encounter it is that there's no way they can imagine that it could produce complex things and, and I've talked to people and they say well I just look at a flower and I can't imagine how that could have evolved or or the eye or so on and so forth and I mean basically that's uh, taking a sort of an argument from incredulity you know the, I can't believe that this could happen and it's not a valid argument, and if you actually look at what we know about eyes or flowers, and if we do comparisons uh, to other things in nature, we can actually start to build up an understanding of how these complex things have evolved from simpler things. Um, you can you can see just looking at the genes how an eye, a complex eye, evolved from just a simple light-sensitive patch of cells. But it takes time to kind of get familiar with all that natural history and all that genetics. But, you know, I, I enjoy spending that time kind of exploring that and writing about it.
1: And then finally, well, there's a, perhaps a sad ending to this story, at least of evolution, that the other side of evolutionary adaptation may be extinction. And species have gone extinct throughout history, but this is the first time in which one species is causing the extinction of others. And I'm wondering, as someone who's a close observer of evolution on a long time scale, and it's fine-tuning and it's amazing diversity and all of that, does the loss of species, is it a theoretical loss to you, or how would you describe how you appreciate, how you feel about this loss of the diversity?
5: I think if you spend uh, any time in places that are really rich with biodiversity, you know, if you've ever been to an Indonesian rainforest, and then you go back 10 years later and you see that you know, where there were once with giant fig trees and orangutans and so on, there's just you know, some palm plantation or just some bare burned patch, you see that it's happening and that we are losing a lot. And, uh, you know,
1: when you say you see, I mean, you have seen this, Mm -hmm. this is your own experience, what you just described.
5: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I I think that extinction is only theoretical if you, you know, sort of don't really connect with nature. I mean, if you, if you just sit in your house and watch cable TV, it's kind of easy to ignore this. But, um, you know, if you, if you, if you just go out in the natural world, you can see these changes happening, and they're happening faster and faster, and, you know, it's it's not theoretical, and it's actually going to affect our lives more and more in the future.
1: Carl Zimmer, thank you so much for speaking with us.
2: Thank you. Carl Zimmer is a columnist for The New York Times.
1: So we've heard a lot of stories in the program that would have fascinated Charles Darwin. Uh, you know, he launched this idea, this scientific idea, and not only has it had a long run, It's been perhaps more powerful than he could have anticipated. It explains a lot of phenomena in the world.
2: Yeah, and it's also interesting to see the modifications that are occurring. Uh, As Carl Zimmer said, bacteria were just spots on a dish somewhere, and now, of course, we can separate them out because we can sequence their genomes. But the really interesting thing there is that, you know, their offspring are not identical to them with a slight bit of modification because they swap genes during their lifetimes. Amazing.
1: And then all these other stories of evolution, the fiddler crabs with their very heavy claws that they use as weapons. Heavy-handed, those guys. <laughs> That's right. And then just could you imagine walking on the planet when there were all these other species of hominids walking around as well? I mean, they were different species from you, not the same species as Bernard
2: Wood explained Normally, in the biological sciences, we don't expect the precision or the predictability of theories as you do in physics. But Darwin's theory of evolution, my goodness, it sounds to me like it's always going to be there.
1: And it sounds like there's a lot more that we'll be learning from evolutionary biology Well, thanks to a very fit production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara
2: Vance. Also thanks to financial support from Reno Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
1: Your ears have been attuned to surfeit of the vitalist. If you want to discover other titles that make you scratch your head or even listen to more shows, we suggest you peruse the Big Picture Science Archive on our website, bigpicturescience.org.
2: And if you're a podcast listener, but you would prefer to replace that with over-the-air radio because... It has a better chance to evolve. Check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show.
1: And if you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion, well, throw in some praise for leavening. And then email it all to bigpicturescience at SETI.org.
0: Okay, I got my own computational software to calculate nonlinear flow plus a viscosity meter. What? How did you get your hands on that? I built it in the basement. This isn't over. Oh no, this competition is not over. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's what's new with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.